she had my uncle in there. I missed chairs back to back every year for like 10. Pregnant with my mom, doctor told her it was slim. It's been rope for nine months, but gave birth in the end. Thought it started sticking, he proud what we done. In one generation, he came from Africa young. Said he met my mom at the Century Club. Los Angeles love, kinda like hustle and book. Money starts then, cross starts too. Starting to see this life shift from a bird's view. We the ones that made millions off the curve. Fool in this rap shit, then never made no moves. You keep taking me higher and higher Yeah, But don't you know that the devil is a liar I know Right back uh, <laughs> That's just a little bit of uh, Higher uh, Featuring Nipsey Hussle and John Legend, the late Nipsey Hussle And I just really like that song, particularly The Devil's a Liar, because it sounds just like my auntie. <laughs> mm. They say that all the time in the South, The Devil's a Liar. Like, don't be believing that stuff. And uh, I just Mm-mm-mm. love that. <laughs> and um, you're tuned into Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we have on the air Rob Kenner, author of The Marathon, Don't Stop. The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle, who, um, wow, made his transition uh, rather violently um, March 31st, 2019. He was born August 15th, 1985. Yeah, another one of those Black August young people, Black August revolutionaries. And um, Rob Kenner uh, is one of the most prolific and influential voices in hip-hop publishing, a founding editor of Vibe, Kenner joined the startup team of Quincy Jones's groundbreaking Hip Hop Monthly in 1992. During a 19-year run at Vibe, he edited and wrote cover and feature stories on iconic cultural figures ranging from Tupac Shakur, Ashe, to Barack Obama, as well as writing the acclaimed column Boom Shots. <laughs> Sounds like boom docks, boom docks a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Kenner's writing has appeared in Complex, Genius, Mass Appeal, Pigeons and Planes, Eagle Trip, Poetry Magazine, The New York Times, and Billboard. He also produced and directed documentary shorts on the likes of uh, De La Soul, Nas, and Post Malone. As editor of at Vibe Books, Kenner worked on the New York Times bestseller, Tupac Shakur, and contributed to the Vibe History of Hip Hop. He went on to co-author, let's see, 15, uh, VX, <laughs> 10 Years of Vibe Photography, and produced the book Unbelievable, a biography of the notorious B.I.G. Ashe by Cleo Hudari Cooker, Jr., which was optioned for the motion picture Notorious. Wow. Well, we are so excited to have you on, and congratulations on the marathon. Don't stop. It, it reminds me of, of the hip-hop um, sort of history that uh, one of our Bay Area writers, whose name has escaped me right now, wrote, um, and it has a CD that accompanied it. Does your book have a CD accompanying it? <laughs> that would be really cool. There is no CD. That would be cool. There's an audio version that I have not... Um seen it on cd form it's all digital these days but um but yeah I, I go back to the days of cassette tape so 
I love uh, <laughs> physical physical copies like that. But thank you so much for having me on the show, Wanda. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Really excited to talk about, you know, uh, Nipsey Hussle um, and his uh, his other name. Um, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> Hermes Askadon. Let me help you with that. I, I learned that um, in the process of working on the book. Hermes Askadon is an Eritrean yeah. name. Hermes Joseph Askadon. Yeah. Right. What does it mean? And Hermes means God will rise. Which Whoa. he had tattooed. Nice. He had that tattooed on his temple, um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's a fitting name, you know. If if your name is your destiny, you know, Hermes um, Askadon uh, definitely rose uh, from where he was started to, you know, where he is today. And um, you know, the name of the book, the marathon don't stop. I think. Is fitting because, you know, although so many people were unaware of the important work that Nipsey Hussle was doing in his community, um, he has only magnified, um, you know, in recent years, even after his passing, the whole world is beginning to learn of all the great works that he was doing and and I you know my intention in writing this book was that more people should know uh why he was so important I think he's one of the most misunderstood figures in hip hop uh, and you know I, I believe that the work he's doing uh is important to carry on not just in Los Angeles but worldwide mm-hmm. wow wow well, you're you're certainly an expert and um and you know you sort of know you know more intimately than others um who the great folks are you know in in this uh uh legacy that is you know hip hop culture and um and hustle um Hermes is is a a, a new person like he doesn't go back to the beginning which you know is like 60 years <laughs> you know in mm, the making yeah. and even longer than that if you sort of track it back to you know, to Jamaica, and you track it back to West Africa or Africa. Sure. So it's even sure. bigger than that. But coming forward, yep. you know, these these lights, these new lights. Tell us, tell us about him and and how you came to know him. Like, did you know him? Know him? Like, like had you met and talked and? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my inspiration for writing this book was that I had the good fortune to meet Nipsey Hussle fairly early in his music journey. Um, when I was an editor at Vibe Magazine um, in 2009, he came up to the offices of Vibe in New York City and was presenting to us his uh, mixtape, which th- at that time the project was called Bullets Ain't Got No Name. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a, one of his earlier mixtapes. And I think everyone who was in the conference room that day when Nipsey Hussle walked in will remember that moment. He just had a magnetic personality and a charisma about him and just a crackling intellect. You could just feel his energy. Um, And, you know, to have that early meeting with him, you know, really impressed me deeply. Um, His music was was great as well um you know he reminded me of some of the early snoop uh tracks that we had heard and we actually did the first cover on snoop 
in 93 um, mm-hmm. at Vibe. And so I had a kind of sense of deja vu listening to to Nipsey flowing over some Dr. Dre beats. And, uh, you know, I, I took him aside after our meeting, after he presented his music, and, and I said, you know, um, keep doing what you're doing. You know, you, we're going to give you all the strength that we can, and, um, you know, I'm going to be listening. And, you know, I, I, we gave him a, a page right up in the magazine, which I learned later was something that he was really working towards for a long time. He had been submitting his demos and sending, um, you know, headshots to the magazine for some time before he got up into the office. And from what I was told, he was actually a little frustrated that we weren't getting back to him, but like all of the goals that he set for himself, he persevered and persisted until he achieved that goal. And, you know, so, for him to be in the office that day was a, you know, kind of a victory lap in itself. Um, and over time, I paid close attention to his career. Um, I wouldn't say that we were friends, but, you know, as a journalist, I, I was watching him and, and, you know, observing the moves he was making. Um, the next big landmark for him, I, I think, was the release of his Crenshaw mixtape in 2013. And by that point, he had put in so much work and built such a loyal fan base, not the biggest fan base, but a very devoted fan base. Um, Mm -hmm. And he decided that he was going to sell that CD for uh, $100 a copy. And this was a bold move for anybody at that time. No one was really paying for music at that point. You know, um, the internet had changed the music industry completely. But he believed that he had built such a connection with his fans and with his followers that they <clears throat> would be proud to pay. And that, that's what he actually called the, the marketing movement that he started there. Um, he, you know, he, he put it in one of his records. He said, when I drop my next project, they'll be proud to pay. And sure enough, people lined up down the block in L.A. to purchase that Crenshaw tape and uh, one of the customers who actually wired funds was Jay-Z, who bought 100 copies, so he wired $10,000 that night. And in that first night, um, all the CDs sold out. That was $100,000 in one night. So the idea wasn't as crazy as some people thought it was. Um, you know, and he was just a visionary businessman. He understood the business of music at a time when it was changing very rapidly and made some very bold and, you know, brilliant moves that have been copied now by the music industry on a whole. You know, um, the idea of selling a CD bundled with uh, tickets to a show, because that was the thing. You would get the CD for $100, and that would also get you access to a a special VIP concert event. Mm -hmm. Um, And now people like Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift are doing that all the time (laughs) with their albums, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's clear that Nipsey was ahead of his time in lots of different ways. And that was just one, you know, aspect of it. But I I love that you mentioned the um, African roots of hip hop, because that was something that Nipsey was very much aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. As he mentions in the song that you just played in higher, his father uh, had come to LA from Africa. He was born in Eritrea in East Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, at a, Q 
key point in Nipsey's uh, upbringing as a young man. Um, his father, Dawit Eskadom, decided that um, his two sons, uh, Aramis and Samil, should come back home with him to Eritrea and get in touch with their, uh, you know, their family who were still living in Eritrea and get in touch with their African heritage and culture. And, um, you know, although their dad had done his best when they were in L.A. to keep them exposed to the culture by, you know, cooking food and playing the music from Africa, obviously it's a whole different thing, getting on that plane and flying all the way to East Africa. And um, when I spoke with Nipsey Hussle years after that, he described that trip as a, a life-changing event for him. It really just opened up his mind and showed him a whole different way of living and, you know, a country where all the authority figures and the, the whole society looked like him, you know, and um, where his, his whole, you know, family would come together for meals every day without fail. You know, the whole society there had such respect for the family. And, um, he noticed and spoke about how much more respect there was for women in Eritrea than where he grew up. And um, changed a lot of things about how he looked at his life. And, you know, when he returned back to L.A. after spending three months there, um, you know, he actually celebrated his uh, 18th birthday out in East Africa. Um, when he came back, he was, a, he was a changed person. You know, his friends noticed a new sense of mission, a new sense of purpose in him. And, um, you know, he would return again. He actually took some music out there when he was, when he went for the first time and he would go to a local record shop and play his songs. And he mm -hmm. told the people in the record shop, you know, you're going to hear about me. I'm going to be a famous rapper one day. And sure enough, you know, the, the next time he returned, which sadly would be the last time, um, you know, he had released his major label album, Victory Lap, which would go on to be, nominated for a Grammy. Um, he was hailed as one of the most important artists uh, at that moment. And he met, he and his father and brother met with the president of Eritrea on that trip. And it was, a, really? you know, kind of, wow. yeah, it was a fulfillment of his own prophecy. He understood, you know, how important he was going to be, I think. And um, mm. so that trip is amazing. That second trip, although it was shorter um, because mm -hmm. he had to get back and go on tour. Um, he made time to meet with the president and he also did some very interesting interviews while he was out there that second time. Um, one in particular, which I quote in the book, the marathon don't stop. Um, he, he spoke with the national newspaper of Eritrea and, you know, the reporter there was not especially familiar with his music or really with hip hop culture in general. But she was very curious and asked a lot of, um, I think, very insightful but very general questions, you know, to kind of introduce simple concepts like what is hip-hop and are gangs scary and things like that. And Nancy really took the time to answer these questions with great care and in great detail. And you could feel that he really wanted to build a stronger connection between the hip hop culture that he was raised in and the African culture that his father 
was raised in and that he had been, you know, introduced to by his dad. Um, and I believe had he lived longer, he would have spent more time in Eritrea and, and would have, mm-hmm. you know, made a way um, to, you know, set up some kind of a base in, in the country that he, he was starting to call home, actually, to refer to Eritrea as home um, in some mm-hmm. interviews. So it's, it's, you know, it's sad to know that he didn't get to do that, but, um, you know, it's a powerful uh, part of the story that he did return just as he predicted. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And then also to to have a home to return to that that this place that is so anti everything black. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not the final destination. Like we have some he has somewhere to go. And he knew where his his family was. A lot of people right. African descent like his friends, you know, it's like, okay, well where <laughs> even if right, you do your exactly. DNA you don't know where unless you get lucky and you know you're a part of um you know finding your roots you know with uh Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. but and he could have mm-hmm. done well he didn't need to because he already knows um but he could have did his mother's side of of his ancestry but i was just thinking the whole idea of of east africa cuz i i've been to ethiopia i couldn't get oh. to a region because at that time, um, and I don't know if, if things have shifted, you had to leave the country and come back through Eritrea because the two countries um, didn't have uh, friendly borders, so you couldn't go okay. from one to another, even though it was just right there um, because right. of the um, the fighting and the warfare. Even though it's exactly. so weird um, that the president of Ethiopia and the president at that time when I was there um, of Eritrea were, rel- or were relatives. I think they were cousins or something. So it's like, you hmm. know, it's crazy that, um, you know, this, this, the false borders, you know, that are put in place because of, uh, of uh, neocolonialism and colonialism exactly. and, 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 you know, and the West's interest in these places. Um, but I was just thinking about the whole idea of Eritrea, you know, being a place of, uh, of, of resistance and to uh to being colonized to to losing you know that port city <laughs> you know where they right. sit um you know yep. to yep. um to to uh Ethiopia after they had had this agreement well we'll help you you know fight um against the west if you will honor our borders and it's like okay well thanks for helping us win the war <laughs> and then it's like hmm. well, now we coming for you um, so I just was thinking about that, and then, like I mentioned before we went on, about what's happening now, um, you know, um, in East Africa. I mean, there's a lot of bloodshed, um, and a lot of people are getting arrested that are resisting. I'm thinking about the, um, you know, some of the larger um, ethnic groups, because uh, the Amharic folks are not the majority population um, in that area. You know, there are other people like the uh, Oromo people and uh and sort of what's happening to the resistors they're being they're being silenced they're being um arrested they're being killed and uh and a lot of these folks are are, are artists like you know one of the main folks uh roma folks he's like a famous he was he, he was killed famous um uh, musician you know and i'm just thinking of of the artist as revolutionary and 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 um nipsey hustle um Ermius, as as a person who knew the power of art to move people 
and sure. and then you know some of the stuff that he came up around you know his his clothing line and his his work around stopping the violence you know mm-hmm. yeah I just want you to talk a little bit about some some more of, of his 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 famous pieces and his lyrical content and what Absolutely. he was working on. No question. Well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, you know, the conflict in Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, because, you know, of course, his father, having grown up there, um, you know, was, was he described his father as a freedom fighter. And, um, you know, his father <laughs> came to um, America really seeking asylum from the conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, there is a, you know, a terrible you know, uh, human rights uh, situation going on, you know, the conflict between the two nations goes back 30 years and more, you know, um, and it's it's been uh, all the more tragic because, as you mentioned, there's close ties between the two countries, you know, culturally they're very similar in a lot of ways. And, um, obviously, there's it's a complicated situation. It is definitely... Um, you know, manipulated by colonial powers. And and then there's also, you know, different languages and tribal, you know, groups within this. And, and it's um, it's complicated, but it is sort of reminiscent of the, the way that Los Angeles is somewhat divided, you know, that you have people who look like each other that live in different neighborhoods and based on, you know, affiliations that sometimes are just inherited and not fully you know, if you if you step out of it and look at it from a bird's eye view, it doesn't seem to be necessary for this kind of conflict to go on. And I think that's one of the things that's important to remember about Nipsey Hussle is that he was a uniter and not a divider. And, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's one of the most misunderstood and important figures in hip-hop because, you know, he never sought to be the most famous artist. He was really interested in his artistic integrity and speaking his truth to the fans that appreciated that and supported it. And he believed that by doing that, he would be more successful than pandering to the least common denominator, you know, and trying to reach everybody with like a pop radio hit sort of thing. So, um, one of the things that he was passionate about was this idea of, you know, um, rising above the conflicts between neighborhoods. And, um, you know, one of the obvious examples of that is um, the song FDT, which, you know, YG and Nipsey Hussle came together to record YG coming from a um, neighborhood that, you know, it was blood affiliated and Nipsey growing up in um, a neighborhood that was affiliated with the rolling sixties Crips, you know, by them coming together, they set a very strong example of unity um, between different neighborhoods. And, you know, the song that they were singing was really uh, to impeach candidate Donald Trump before he was elected to office um, you know, um, before the U.S. Congress impeached Donald Trump, it was YG and Nipsey Hussle who came together and did that. And, you know, they did it because they saw someone trying to divide the country. They saw someone trying to demonize the Mexican people in America. And they, they saw someone who was throwing black students out of his rallies, um, someone who 
had been endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, you know, running for public office. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the media took Donald Trump as a joke at first or, you know, played it for ratings because he was kind of a reality show character. Um, And, of course, there were a lot of hip-hop artists who were very friendly with Donald Trump in earlier times in his in his life where, you know, his name was just sort of like a symbol of success. You know, Donald Trump equals millionaire equals, you know, it's like wearing a gold chain saying Donald Trump's name in a record. It just makes you seem affluent somehow. And so he was very friendly with a lot of rappers. And unfortunately, when he was running this campaign that was so divisive and so charged with racial hatred and, you know, just evil rhetoric. Um, hip hop did not have a very strong counter response. You know, if you think, think about Barack Obama's campaign, um, and you mentioned earlier in the show that I, you know, when I was at Vibe, we did two cover stories on Barack Obama. We were the first publication to endorse him for our office, and we did a second cover story um, on the November of his actual first election. You know, and so hip hop was strongly behind Obama as a candidate. You know, you remember Jay-Z and uh, Common and uh, Will I Am and uh, a lot of artists were strongly supporting his, his, his run. Um, but in the case of Donald Trump, hip-hop did not really speak out against him until it was too late. The only voice that organized a resistance to him was Nipsey Hussle and YG. And, yeah. you know, although it, did, it didn't prevent him being elected, you know, because he did win that first election. Um, even after Nipsey's passing, that song was streamed millions of times on Election Day 2020. So I would argue that we can thank them for helping to mobilize the vote. You know, that song became like an anthem on Election Day and at many of the rallies during the whole, you know, the, the horrible year that we've had last year with, you know, all of the police brutality and the the Black Lives Matter uprisings that have gone on across the nation. You heard that song playing um, along with a few other important records. But, you know, this was the the part of Nipsey that people kind of need to be reminded of. And that's why I wrote the book, The Marathon Don't Stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I looked up the song. Um, It's, uh, I can't play it because... It's got, it would be there would be nothing left of the song because it would all be bleeped. <laughs> well, actually, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but besides, you know, the the, the expletives. But I understand. Um, it's an yeah, important well, record. Looking, it's a street record. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you know, he starts out, you know, just when I thought it would wouldn't get no sicker. Woke up one morning and heard this weird, um, you know, bleep bleep, bleep stalking out the yep. side of his neck. <laughs> Yeah, me and all yep, my people, yep. we was all, we always thought he was straight, influential, bleep, when it came to the business. Mm-hmm. But now, since we know how you really feel, this is how we feel. Yep. And then it's F yep. Donald Trump, F Donald Trump. Yeah, it's yes, like it a whole stanza of <laughs> Donald Trump. It's like, okay. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, and I like white folks, but I don't like you. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's like. And then the lap, the I'm not skipping a whole lot. People should look it up. Um, <laughs> but I like the 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 chorus. You know, we the youth, 
we the people of this country. We got a voice too. We will be seen and we will be heard. And so I was like, okay, folks, get out there and vote. Exactly. <laughs> he doesn't say that, you know, but it, that's sort of like that's what you do. Exactly. And and when that video came out, which you know had millions of views very quickly, um, mm-hmm. you know, YG and Nipsey made sure to include a uh, a. a several lines of text right in the beginning to explain their purpose behind the song. This was not just, you know, a diss record. This was a very intentional statement to say, you know, choose wisely. This is the most important election of our lifetimes. And, you know, we encourage our audience to register and participate and, you know, let your voice be heard. And, you know, when you see the effort to disenfranchise voters of color across the country, which is still going on, probably even at a greater rate now than ever, um, you know, it's really important that the, the power of hip hop be harnessed to motivate and inspire young people to participate, um, lest, you know, their voices be, um, you know, ignored or, or, or drowned out, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's an important record in a lot of ways. Obviously, you know, Nip had a lot of other types of songs that he did, but that's one that I like to highlight just because, you know, it shows his his intention to unite rather than divide. And I think, you know, to the extent that I was saying before, a lot of people kind of slept on him during his career, but to the extent that people were aware of him in the music industry, I think especially outside of L.A., like in New York, where I'm speaking to you from today, um, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who just thought, okay, well, Nipsey's a quote-unquote gangster rapper, you know, and that label kind of, you know, is a broad brush label that I don't think is particularly helpful to understanding what his true purpose was. You know, it's, it is true that, you know, he grew up in a neighborhood that was, um, you know, had a strong gang uh, culture that went back a long way and he was involved with that gang but you need to understand a little bit more about the context of you know Los Angeles history and American history and that's one of the things I tried to do in the book you know is to struggle with the idea like okay Nipsey Hussle was clearly a brilliant mind you know he he was able to build his own computers in high school from parts you know he was someone who educated himself and everyone he knew. He sent reading lists to all of his friends and um, family members. He always had books in his studios and offices. And, you know, um, so what was his thought process to get involved with, you know, uh, the neighborhood gang? You know, why did he choose to do that? And, you know, to understand that, I had to really re-educate myself about what we even mean when we talk about gangs in in uh, Los Angeles. You know, I mean, getting back to the whole Donald Trump thing, I mean, a lot of people hadn't heard of the Proud Boys until they tried to overthrow the government in January. You know, this is a, a, a white racist gang that, you know, ran up in the United States Capitol building and tried to overturn the the election results um so you know when we talk about gangs i think we need to know like who are the real gangsters um and you know america has a long history of gang violence which includes racist white gangs you know um when i was researching the marathon don't stop i learned about a group called the spook hunters who were active in los angeles um you know 
during the 1940s and 50s, and you know they operated with the support of the Los Angeles police. Um, but they were a gang that had a you know a logo of a black person being lynched on the back of their jacket, and they would go around you know intimidating black students going to school or you know terrorizing families that dared to move slightly outside of the areas that you know were designated as the places that black people were allowed to live you know so we have to understand how gangs formed and why you know there were there were um sort of neighborhood protection organizations at first groups like the Slossons um who Nipsey references strongly in his music he he had a a crew early on in his career, him and his friends, they called themselves the Slauson Boys, and that was a reference to the Slauson's gang. Now, the Slauson's mm-hmm. gang was way before even the Black Panthers, and they were primarily there to protect the neighborhood. And, you know, Nipsey was very much aware of these, uh, you know, this history. He He educated himself. He read widely, and I believe that part of his motivation to be involved with, you know, the neighborhood uh, street culture was in order to try to kind of redirect things back to their original purpose. You know, um, if if you saw the, the film Judas and the Black Messiah that came out recently, then, you know, a lot of people saw how Fred Hampton from the Black Panther Party in Chicago was targeted by the FBI and eventually was murdered, you know, and similar things happened in LA with Bunchy Carter, who was the head of the LA chapter of the Panthers, Um, you know, and, you know, Bunchy had previously been the leader of the Slossons, you know? So I believe when Nipsey talks about the Slosson boy, he had Slosson boy tattooed on his back. Um, You know, he was very aware of the legacy and, um, you know, in my research for the book, you know, I, I read books like uh, City of Quartz by Mike Davis. There's a film called Bastards of the Party, which gets yeah, into how the one. Black Panther. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's, it's that kind of thing. You know, these films um, and, and books were very helpful to me to understand the context that Nipsey was growing up in. And so when you when you try to understand how the Crips and Bloods came to be and how the loss of life and you know, pain and, and, you know, negative things that have come from that conflict, I think you need to understand the context it, you know, came from. And Nipsey was very much aware of that context. And I believe, you know, the day after he was murdered, he was scheduled to meet with the uh, commissioner of the Los Angeles Police Department and, and members of his management team. They were going to have a meeting about ways to, improve relations between the police force and the community. And, you know, that gets to the the most important part, I think, of his work is that, you know, so often we hear of um, successful rappers or athletes, you know, people who come from disenfranchised neighborhoods and become successful, they often move away. You know, they might send some, you know, holiday treats or whatever, but they're not involved day to day. Um, but Nipsey Hussle did the opposite. He stayed right there. He, he would say 10 toes down right in his community 
he and his brother Sam built a business in a shopping plaza on the corner of Crenshaw and Slauson. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was where they had started selling CDs and T-shirts and socks. And, you know, they built that up until they were able to buy that whole shopping plaza and mm-hmm. partner with, you know, investors to literally buy back the block and provide jobs for the community, employ people from the neighborhood who might not have been able to find legal uh you know, jobs that would, that would hire them because of, you know, they had a criminal record or whatever, and, or just because of lack of opportunity. And so, you know, for Nipsey to stay there in the community and invest the profits of his music and his successful clothing line, the Marathon Clothing, um, his partnerships with Puma and Rock Nation, Jay-Z's management company, you know, he was bringing all that back to the community. And I think that's what made him so important and, um, you know, someone whose example really needs to be emulated. Um, I could go on and on. I wrote 400 pages about it. But. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, your book is, is certainly um, uh, an investment of, of your time and, and passion and, you know, I believe probably wanting to get the story um, right. And so, you know, they're... Yeah, and that's good. You know, that's really good um, when when a person, you know, invests so much scholarship and energy into telling the story of an important figure that has been uh, overlooked or and and perhaps misunderstood. Because you know, the word rap, hip hop, those words sort of carry their own kind of connotations, and it depends on where you sit as to what kind of connotation that is, whether it's a positive sure. one or a negative one. And then you think yep. about Los Angeles, Los Angeles, uh, you know, within itself, I mean, there's so many different Los Angeles, you know, you think the place, but then you think the history, and it sort of depends on who you are. I mean, there's a large uh, community of people that move from the south to Los Angeles so that they could have more opportunity. Um, You know, racism is something that permeates the whole United States. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. you know, at least least it it wasn't as as obvious, you know, there were no signs early on. This is before, you know, all those great civil rights acts and voting rights acts and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I'm just mm-hmm. thinking um, around, uh, you, you said a few things. Um, I'm thinking, you know, when you mentioned Judas and the Black Messiah, I'm thinking COINTELPRO. And I'm also thinking yeah. about about the CIA's, um, you know, mandate, mission to uh, to interrupt any kind of, you know, black unity, you know, organizing for, um, uh, for I guess, what do you call it, um, <clears throat> organizing for, for one's, you know, human rights, you know, in a place that doesn't see you as human. And, and, and that whole what happened with dropping the drugs and the guns in Los Angeles, like it happened, you know, which completely right. um, interrupted, you know the black uh, organizing of of the African American African diaspora organizing that was so uh, you know in place around you know what the Black Panther Party was doing you know Black Panther Party yep. for self defense was doing um, and then you think about gangs you mentioned gangs and the biggest gang is the police department and you think about you know um, 
the Los Angeles Police Department, which was notorious. I mean, L.A. I mean, not L.A. Excuse me. The New York Police Department was, you know, also notorious. But L.A. Oh man, they have their own own shelf in hell. <laughs> you know, it's like um, you wow, know, yeah. so cold and everything. I mean, goodness yep, gracious. Yep. I mean, it's absolute yeah. insanity, and the community couldn't fight that. You know, no matter how many arms, but. Yeah, the whole thing, you know, with the guns and and the drugs, and then you drop these innocent babies, these children into that mix, and it's chaotic, and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, if you can live through that, survive that, I mean, that in itself is remarkable, even today. Exactly. Yeah, he spoke about that. I think he had a really strong sense of his place in history, you know, Nipsey's music is a testimony of someone who overcame those obstacles, defied the odds, um, and managed to build his own business, him and his family, you know, and his closest friends built a business that was, you know, based on music and, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, yes, Nipsey had gone through a time where he was kind of, you know, hustling in in ways that I think he would not say were positive, you know, and that he grew up grew out of. But you know, he had long ago turned a corner and you know was showing all of his neighborhood and all of his you know closest friends another way. You know, was helping people get out of that gang-banging life and, you know, get into music, get into other types of employment and, you know, really working with the community. Um, He was also involved in a program called Destination Crenshaw, which was an open arts installation that ran along Crenshaw Avenue uh, where he worked with the city council. He actually came up with the name Destination Crenshaw. And the idea was to kind of, create what what they called a bulwark against gentrification, you know, so that if there were going to be new people moving into the neighborhood um, and new money coming in, they, they didn't want the history and the culture of, you know, one of LA's most important historic black neighborhoods to ever be erased. So Destination Crenshaw would ensure that, you know, the, the heroes of black Los Angeles would have a permanent place in the community. And, um, you know, it's just one of many examples of the community minded work that, that Nipsey was doing. He, he also set up a place called vector 90, which is similar to like a, we work. It's like a shared office space yeah. that people could mm-hmm. rent desks and, and network for, you know, entrepreneurs that wanted to start businesses or just, you know, work somewhere other than like at a Starbucks coffee shop or whatever. And, you know, um, by having that, he also made it possible for um, students to learn about science and technology and engineering and mathematics, because that's um, something that he would have been interested in learning more about when he was a kid. Um, As I mentioned, he was building computers from parts, you know, when he was in, in high school. Um, so, you know, had he had an option like that available to him as a younger boy, it's, it's no telling what he might have done. So these were the kinds of moves that Nipsey was making. And 
I think that really needs to be uplifted and, and more people need to know about that example and also emulate it, you know, and, and see that it is possible to do these things um, against what might seem insurmountable odds. That's that whole idea of the marathon is so important. Yeah. You know, that's the book is called the marathon. Don't stop. Nipsey, you know, had mixtapes, the marathon, the marathon continues. And of course his clothing business was called the marathon clothing. And it was that whole idea of like having a long term vision you know, having the endurance and the foresight to, uh, you know, stick with it against any obstacles and uh, find your pace and just keep going. That's what he said. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you just, it's Mm -hmm. not about, you know, competing against everybody else. It's about, you know, finding your own pace and making sure that you do your very best. And I think that idea is so inspiring. And, you know, since the book's Mm -hmm. come out, I've seen so many people showing love and expressing their admiration for Nipsey. And I think they're happy to be able to learn more about him. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's an inspiring story and we can all use a little inspiration. Oh, we can always use inspiration. That doesn't ever run out. (laughs) But then, you know, in a uh, pandemic, inspiration is good. (laughs) I was wondering, um, yeah, yeah. I was wondering, um, uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation. It's like this is great. Um, I was I'm just wondering so if you could that. talk. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, uh, more about the marathon, and, and, and by marathon I mean um, who did he pass the baton to? So what if his mm. work continues now? And and then I wanted to ask you, um, uh, you know, who is he survived by? And uh, yeah, yeah, that's those a great question. Questions. That's a great question. So, um, well, his partner from day one, uh, someone who he always looked up to was his big brother, Sam, Samuel, um, a.k.a. Black Sam. And, um, you know, Sam was really the the visionary in terms of retail. And, you know, he was the one that set up that table early in the morning, selling the T-shirts, selling the socks before they even had a store. They would be out in the parking lot, you know, and uh, him and and their childhood friend, uh, Stephen Donaldson, who went by the name of Fats. And they were, um, you know, just retail geniuses. And Sam is still going. Sam, you know, is definitely the keeper of the flame in terms of, you know, keeping the family legacy alive. And, um, of course, uh, there are many other partners in the business that, um, are still, you know, very much committed to keeping the, the Marathon Clothing Company going, um, as well as, you know, protecting Nipsey's musical legacy and all of the work that, that he was doing. Um, you know, Lauren London, who was the love of his life and uh, the mother of his son, Cross, um, you know, is obviously a very important part of that uh, that unit that, you know, keeps... Nipsey Hussle's legacy going, and, uh, uh, you know, the book actually opens with her amazing eulogy at the Staples Center memorial service, which was, I think, you know, a, a moment that many people will never forget. It was a, a moment also, I think, when a lot of people realized, hey, I need to pay attention to this guy, because, you know, I might not have heard of Nipsey Hussle before today, but here he has, you know, 21,000 people 
in the Staples Center, you know, uh, mourning him and celebrating his life. And, you know, here's uh, Stevie Wonder singing a song for him and Barack Obama has written a letter of tribute and, you know, Minister Farrakhan is giving a speech and, uh, you know, Snoop Dogg is del- delivering a eulogy. So, uh, but, but Lauren London's remarks that day were, were amazing um, and very powerful. So that's how the book opens. Um, mm-hmm. And then other people who are carrying on his legacy include some of the artists that he, uh, you know, either was inspired by early on or then, um, you know, as I mentioned, he kind of helped inspire others to get out of the street life and apply their talent to music. And I'm thinking of artists like Cousy Capone, Jay Stone, uh, Pac-Man, B.H., Cobby Supreme. There's a whole wave of artists who are um, part of the All Money In Records team. That was the the name of the company, All Money In, No Money Out. It's kind of a philosophy of economic self-empowerment. And um, so they are all keeping the marathon going musically and also emulating some of his business moves and, you know, giving back to the community. There's a neighborhood NIP foundation, which the family set up, um, which is uh, focused on inspiring and supporting arts in the community. Um, and many of the, the businesses that he opened, like Vector 90, the, the workspace and STEM Academy are still going and, um, and there are plans for the Marathon clothing store to be converted into a, a Nipsey Hustle Tower, actually, which will have a, a museum and um, housing for people of different income levels because that's so hard mm-hmm. to find in L.A. these days. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the, the work is continuing, and I think it's also great that, you know, around the world people are tapping in. I've even heard since the book, has been published that um, there are people emulating his work in Africa. You know, someone I spoke Mm with um, had been doing work in Nairobi and said that not only do they listen to Nipsey's music, but they're emulating some of his business ideas about, you know, reinvesting in the community. um, Mm. So, you know, the marathon really does not stop. And uh, that is why I thought this book was so important because, you know, there really hadn't even been enough, like, magazine profiles written about Nipsey. He was so under the radar in a lot of ways. You know, he connected directly with his fans through social media and through, like, video interviews and things like that. But for people that weren't tapped into that, um, it was possible for them to just completely miss it. And that's why I thought this book was important. Oh, and yeah. I just yeah, I'm really grateful really happy to you. I thought for, it was important. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. grateful to you for having me on the show to talk about it because you know it's for people who don't know and want to know. That's why I wrote the book, mm-hmm. and you know I appreciate right. you so much for opening up this platform oh, to discuss it. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, I was just thinking you just mentioned um, uh, workspace uh, and mm-hmm. uh, well, actually, with Vector 90, the workspace, but Stand yeah. Academy. Did I hear you right? Stand like S T A N D. Yeah, so Stand. STEM is you oh, know STEM. an acronym for science, technology, okay. uh, engineering, and mathematics, and okay. um, those were all areas that Nipsey thought it was important for, um, especially people of color, people from his community to 
get more training in because that's really where the tech jobs of the future are going to be, um, you know, relying on having that knowledge base. And, you know, Nipsey understood that, um, you know, to uplift the community, there had to be better jobs for people, not just any job, you know, and, and you know, having real power to, um, you know, use technology. I mean, the Marathon Clothing Store, I should point out, had some of the most advanced technology of any retail place in the world. You know, he had an app that was um, programmed by a young African gentleman named Idris Sandu, who he had bumped into um, in uh, a Starbucks, actually. Uh, this is before Vector 90 opened. And uh, he recruited Idris to write, and write the code for the Marathon Clothing app. And it allowed people to scan a hang tag on a on a piece of clothing in the store, and they could see exclusive video content and all kinds of things that were only possible in that store. Even the NBA store didn't have that kind of technology um, until after. They did eventually do a similar thing at the NBA store, but the Marathon Clothing had it first. So, you know, Nip was always on the cutting edge of, you know, whatever was next. When you talk about cryptocurrency and all the stuff that's going on now, yeah. he was way early on that. Um, you know, all the, you're hearing now about um, NFTs and blockchain and all that stuff. Nipsey was on it. And, um, you know, it's, it's tragic that he isn't here to, you know, reap the benefits of all of the hard work and, and studying and self-educating that he, he did. But, you know, the last conversation that I had with him and the, literally the last question of our interview, I said to him, you know, I really admire the way that you give so much knowledge in your music and in your interviews. You know, it's like all the insights that you gain, you share them with people. You want, it's like you want people to be able to follow in your footsteps. And he said, um, well, you know, I'm not outside giving out bags of money but Nipsey Hussle told me the game is free, you know, and that's all we ever wanted when we were kids is for the OGs to give us the game. You know, you don't have to tell us all your secrets, but just give us enough of the game that we can emulate you and, you know, try to lift ourselves up. And if you don't give the game that are curious and want to learn, it's almost like you're hating on them. You know, it's almost like you're trying to block them. So, you know, in this book, The Marathon Don't Stop, that is my goal is to kind of, you know, carry on Nipsey's intention of giving the game to all those who are interested and in letting them understand the insights and, um, you know, the really brilliant moves that, that Nipsey was making and, you know, the inspiring story of how he overcomes so many obstacles to accomplish so much in, in the time he had on Earth. Yeah, wow, that's that's really beautiful. I was just thinking when you were talking about um, uh, the blueprint that there was, um, and I don't know if you know it, but there's a an art um, exhibition, and it's called Question Bridge: Black Males Blue Black Males um, Blueprint, and hmm. uh, and what and and what it is is, and it, it goes way back, like um, maybe two thousand. Maybe it was at the Oakland Museum, and then since then it's traveled all over the place. Um, okay. uh, and and it has these black men that are elders 
um, speaking video, and then they have the younger mm. black men speaking video. And the way that the the work is curated is as if the men are speaking to the young men, but everybody's has, has responded to these questions, question bridge, not not in a conversation separately, but but when you step right. into the gallery, it's like they're talking to each other. It's like you know, what's the question? Mm. What's the blueprint? We you know we want to like do this better and do this right, right. but we don't yep. know because y'all haven't shared it with us. And and so anyway, um, it sounds like you know what uh, um, Nipsey was speaking of is it's similar to to this particular um, art installation. And I'll send you a link mm-hmm. to it. Uh, because I would love <laughs> to see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't know where it is now. It's it's been moving around. It was at the um uh it was at the Exploratorium as a permanent exhibit for a while. Um but um yeah, it's 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 really, really wonderful. So the um um got three minutes. Uh, I wanted you to be able to, to tell our audience about this uh this uh song that you told me that I should um Play, oh, um, okay. what it feels like. Um, but before that, um, just just the whole idea of you know of um, of, of Nipsey um, Ermias's um, demise. You know, he was shot, and and he's got you know all he's got a whole series of songs about about gun violence. And I was just right. yeah, I just wanted you to. I don't think we spoke about that yet. I mean, we did. No, we but haven't. Then we didn't. We haven't. So I pretty, I really want you to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Nipsey Hussle was someone who lived in Los Angeles, you know, in the aftermath of the Rodney King uprising and at the dawn of the death row era and rap. Um, gang culture was very prevalent in his neighborhood. And, you know, he learned early on that um, part of his life involved carrying a gun for protection. You know, that was, that was just a reality of his life. And, uh, mm-hmm. he usually had, you know, over time, uh, you know, he was able to employ bodyguards to protect him rather than carrying a gun because he didn't want to risk imprisonment. But, um, yeah, gang violence and gun violence is, an American tragedy and, you know, we're seeing it play out even just last night in Indianapolis, there was another mass shooting and we're seeing police oh, killing innocent, uh, you know, uh, unarmed black people, and, you know, police pulling them over on the side of the road. I mean, we're seeing it over and over again and it's, it's a national tragedy that, um, you know, I think Nipsey, had some perspective on, but he also understood the reality of the life that he had grown up in. And, you know, um, the person who is in custody for, you know, for killing him was also a member of the gang. And, um, you know, we may never know all the reasons behind that atrocity and what took place, but it is for certain that if there were not so many guns flooding the streets of Los Angeles that, you know, his life and the lives of so many other uh, brilliant young men and women would not have been cut short, you know. And if you if you go back and listen to Stevie Wonder's eulogy at Nipsey Hussle's Celebration of Life at the Staples Center, he took a long moment to talk about gun control and gun violence. And, 
you know, President Biden, I believe, is trying to pass another gun control bill, you know, um, but we've seen so many times where the National Rifle Association and the gun lobby just blocks that kind of legislation. And, you know, it seems like America's real national pastime is just gun lust and, you know, just a fascination and obsession with violence that, you know, unfortunately, you know, ended up claiming Nipsey's life along with many other people. And, you know, it's a senseless waste of human potential and, you know, horrible, horrible thing. And if you look at every other country in the world, America is just by far the most, you know, plagued with this problem. And until we get serious about it and confronting this, um, we're, we're going to continue to suffer these kind of atrocities. Mm, right, right. And, you know, you've heard what the CDC said around um, um, around the uh, what's happening with black people um, in this country, um, you know, around the excessive violence exercised by by the police. But just in general, oh, yeah. you know, black life isn't worth anything, um, uh, you know, insofar as we we see, you know, people being stopped. Because their tags are expired and then they don't live through the stop. Right, and or then, they have and then air people, or hanging, or you know. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just one thing after another. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it seems as though it's not really anything to do with what the driver did wrong. It's just often a case of racial profiling that very quickly escalates to, uh, you know. Uh, summary execution and it's uh it's it's got to mm-hmm. stop and you know, i mean the fact that you even have to have a statement like black lives matter like why does that even need to be said it's so ridiculous that we even need to be having this conversation and you know this mm-hmm. is a conversation that goes back you know when the situation in minnesota you know um between george floyd and um you know, more recently, uh, the young brother that was pulled over for the air freshener hanging from his rear mirror, you know, um, it it's not just confined to the Deep South anymore. You know, Nina Simone saying Mississippi goddamn, but now it's like Minnesota goddamn, you know, like the, it's every part of the country now that these things are happening and it's, uh, you know, it's a national disgrace. And, you know, I feel like there's a renewed uh, resolve that's happening right now. And if we can uh, pray for any kind of uh, good to come from all this tragedy would be that it, you know, really galvanizes all people of goodwill to say enough is enough and it has to stop. Police departments need to be held accountable and the system just has to be completely revamped. And, you know, whether it's a matter of defunding police or re-educating police, changing the structure of the way our society works, it, it's a serious problem. And, you know, I feel that, you know, Nipsey Hussle's name is going to play a part in raising consciousness to bring about real change and you know that's that's my hope for you know his legacy and you know my 
contribution as a journalist is to have written this book to, you know, get the story out there. Right, yeah. Well, I'm really happy that, you know, you took the time out of your life to to write the marathon, Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. I know when I when I first heard his name, I thought of, you know, Nipsey Russell. I really loved his mm. work. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the inspiration, of course. But yeah, a funny no, story no. when you went when you went to Eritrea, um, you know the the reference to Nipsey Russell really doesn't mean anything to people out there. So um, mm-hmm. they changed his name slightly to Nebzi, which is a, a ah. local slang, which roughly translates to like homeboy or friend. And so mm-hmm. you know he's he's beloved in Eritrea as you can imagine. And uh, mm-hmm. you know when he gave that that last interview to the uh, national newspaper in Eritrea, uh, the reporter asked, "Would you like to correct anything? Would you like to change, you know, the way people refer to you?" And he understood what they were calling him and what it meant. He said, "No, it's perfect. Don't change a thing. This is this is great." So he he was happy to mm-hmm. be thought of as Nebzi in in uh in his home in Eritrea. Yeah, very nice, very nice. So uh, my other guest is waiting patiently. So tell me tell us about about this song that you you recommend so we can close out with it. Um close this section. Section this okay, conversation well, out and uh with, with um what it feels like. Well what it feels like is a track that was inspired by the film uh, Judas and the Black Messiah that we mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, it's yeah. a collaboration between Nipsey, uh, who obviously recorded his vocals before the film came out, um, and Jay-Z, who uh, has a business relationship with Nipsey, was managing him at the time of his demise, um, collaborates with him on the record. And they're, you know, on the record, the simplest way I can sum it up is that Nipsey calls himself <laughs> Young Malcolm. And, uh, oh, you know, talks really? about the, yeah, talks about the, uh, you know, transformation he's gone through and the obstacles he's overcome. And, you know, don't forget that Malcolm X started out as Detroit Red. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's some parallels that can be drawn. Nipsey wore a Malcolm <laughs> chain for much of his life that his brother gave him. And, uh, yeah, I just played a song. And I, I, once again, I thank you, Wanda, for the time to speak with you today. And, uh, Long live Nipsey Hussle. Yes, Ashe, Ashe. Thank you again. This has been so wonderful. All right. Enjoy the tune. Thank you. And this is what it feels like. And this is what it feels like. And I survive cause a nigga is special first You get successful, then it gets stressful thirst Niggas gon' test you, see what your texture's worth Diamonds and bites, one of them pressure burst Street niggas, still I get checked and first. I'm for peace, but before I get pressed, I'm murk Better days, pray for, but expecting worse At this level, boy, shit, I'm just left concerned Cruising in the six, looking at the proceeds to rap music on my wrist. Drop another mixtape, my shit booming out this bitch. Young Malcolm, I'm the leader of the movement out this bitch. Look, and this is what it feels like. Reach a level, make you question, is it real life? All the weed good, all the pussy real tight. And the only rule, keep your dollar bills 
what it feels like. And this is what it feels like. And this is what it feels like. And this is what it feels like. Scorpion bricks, way before Orbeez double disc, 40 on my lap, clap, sound like 40 did the mix, filtered bass, sip coat, like a Michelin star chef, chef, kiss to my wrist, I go dummy with my left, I arrest on my dick, try to audit all my checks, too late, you know they hate when you become more than they expect, you let them crack a storm, your capital put their feet up on your desk, and yeah, you talking tough to me, I lost all my little respect, I'm selling weed, in the open, bringing folks home from the feds, I know the payback gonna be me, I'm saving all my little bread, pray for me, y'all, one day I'ma have to pay for these thoughts, real niggas, is it stinks, it ain't safe for me, my dog, they killing niggas in they own hood, that makes sense to you at all, you burnt your bridge to the other side, you know you can't swim across, y'all know niggas can't swim, they fried Mike after he died, y'all know niggas can't win, you never land, no joke aside, I arrived on the J. Fred Hampton, got birth, hold up, assassinated just to clarify further, with Chuck A. Bertha is the chairman mixed with Jeff Ford, big step on the jet with my legs crossed, black stones on my neck, y'all can't kill Christ, black messiah is what I feel like. Shit ain't gonna stop cause y'all still blood We gonna turn up even more since y'all killed cuz this is what it feels like And this is what it feels like And this is what it feels like And this is what it feels like Much for working me into your schedule. You are one of my favorite 
artist, oh, and wow, yes, and you're Pacola. Oh my goodness, yeah, Maureen and uh, Aurora Theaters, magnificent. Yeah. Ah, the bluest eye, you know. Um, wow, wow, wow. Tony Morrison, yeah, I'm sure, is like saying, "You go, guys. You go, girls and guys. You know, like you all are just like a phenomenal yeah. cast. Great director, great direction." Right. Ah, tech support, you know, artistry. Mm-hmm. Wow, the radio play. So good. Oh, my yes. goodness. <laughs> her spirit, her spirit was definitely felt. Tony Morrison's spirit was definitely felt through the whole process. And being in this weird state, you know, of the world right now, it was it was just so beautiful. Mm. I'm still shocked. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, we did that. You know, it happened. Yeah. We put it together. Yeah, and you it was almost effortless, you know. <laughs> mm. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, but wow, you are you are the protagonist. You are that girl. <laughs> Pacola. Yes. Oh my goodness, like whew, like what were you baby, wearing? What were you right. burning? Were you burning burning all kind of sage in the room? I mean, what were you wearing? Like, uh, yes, like amethyst crystals <laughs> and rose quartz. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> right, cuz it was heavy. It was, mm-hmm. and the funny thing was, I had started, I had started reading the novel, maybe like, like late 2019. I hadn't read it, but I'd always heard about it, um, mm-hmm. and I started it, but I couldn't, I couldn't get all the way through. You know, it was just so heavy, um, mm-hmm. and the magnitude, but beautiful, but beautiful in its heaviness. And so when um, Don was like. Hey, we're doing the, you know, we're doing an audio drama. Would you like to be in it? And would you like to play this character? And I was like, oh, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> we had a conversation recently, you know, and I was like, I knew it was going to be heavy, but I knew that the reason that I do art and theater is because I know in those heavy spaces, even though the stories are heavy, they need to be told, but the community is going to hold you up and support you. Mm-hmm. You know, and so immediately I was like, "Oh, absolutely!" But yeah, I was—I had my—I had my, my, you know, my incense going. Thankfully, I was at home and in my space, and I would just write um, when I would feel her presence, um, and mm-hmm. when I would feel the heaviness, I would just write her letters. Oh, so in my little really? journal, yeah, my little, yeah, that's what I would do because we would. It was really it was really nice because we were on Zoom, so we could like you know turn off our cameras when we weren't working a scene. And so whenever I would feel, like, charged or, like, anything coming up, I would just write her something in my little notebook and just be like, Ooh. you know, I, I felt so connected to her in so many oh. ways, you know, with the internalized yeah. racism and all this stuff growing up, you know, being a black girl in this in this world. I was just like, wow. You know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, it, just, it just carries over. It doesn't, you know, we just always carry it. And there's a point where sometimes there's a healing, but it's still there, you mm-hmm. know. And Piccoli just taught you so much. She was just so kind. She was, she's loving. Mm-hmm. You know, she just wanted to be loved. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And she's beautiful, yeah, she's too. Deep. Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you can think about good. sort of the spook who sat by the door, you know, um, Piccola was his daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They both sitting yeah. by the door. Like, okay, when is it going to open for us? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just love, just love um, the relationship between Piccola and her girls. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that friendship. Sweet. So beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah kept her yeah. going. You know, mm-hmm. and, we, and we talked about that a lot, about how the kids orchestrate the story and, mm-hmm. and that we, how we need to listen to the kids more. You know, the youth, and I've always said this, I've, I've worked many times and still work um, with organizations that sponsor youth. I work with EOYDC. That was one of my first jobs in East Oakland. You're at EOYDC? Um, really? Yeah, I've, I've worked with, yeah, I, I do their social, I run their social media account. <laughs> you do? Oh, so do, you do? Uh-huh. So you know Miss Regina, yes. wow. I do. <laughs> Mr. Gina has, Mr. Gina gave me my first job. I have known her since I was. Fourteen going on fifteen. <laughs> oh wow! How cool! Yeah. Really? Wow! My daughter used to work yeah. there. She taught. She taught. Um. Uh. She taught photography there for a bit in there. You know, because oh. she did. Um. Uh. They did. You know. They used film, and she stopped after yes. a while because film is so toxic. <laughs> Those chemicals yeah, that is not yes. the film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I might have been there when they still had that room, but I'm not sure. Because I started okay. working there in 2000, 2000, uh, 2007, I want to say. Okay, and my daughter had I was still in high come school. and gone. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So many people have been through oh. there, you know, and it's it's that journey. But the youth, mm-hmm. you know, that that the youth that I've always, like, worked with and, and been, you know, in my youth, and we just, there's just so much knowledge once we mm-hmm. listen to the youth, you know, and, and they're the, the new wave. They're coming up and they're knowing stuff. And if we just, like, listened and took time to just like, oh, you do, you know what you're talking about. And you know the world that you want to see and the world that you mm-hmm. that you want to live in. Because it's not, you know, I, I'm, I'm only turning 30 this year, but I still feel, you know. I oh, you are happy young. <laughs> yes. 29, um, how sweet. Right. I know, and in my 30th year, because I have nieces and nephews, so I'm building my elderness with them, you know, where I'm like, I, I got to listen to them. Because it's their world now, you know, I'm, I'm moving out <laughs> in my 30 years. <laughs> so, that's yeah, funny. Nicola, yeah, Claudia and Frida, that, that's the youth. They, they know, they knew, and they continue to know, you know, in mm-hmm. that world of the bluest eye. They were orchestrating everything, and they were just, they just had the answers. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, they did. Claudia in particular. Mm-hmm. It's like yes. no white people, <laughs> no no yes. no white girls dancing with my my um right. Um, no 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 heck to the no. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I love that monologue. Oh, disrespectful. Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> right. She said, Mr. Jangles, not mine. I was like, that's she's absolutely right. <laughs> just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I see your bio, and I'm going to read it, and and then I want you to tell you tell us a little bit uh, more about yourself and uh, and and how you came to acting and how you came to this role and so the where 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 Pacola sits, um, you know, in in your um, in your acting, um, uh, I guess career like. Like this, I'm sure this this kind of character, um, mm-hmm. just like other characters, I'm sure. But this particular character is one that I'm not certain if you could ever leave behind. I mean, like, like she sort of like it's like a notch in your belt if you had a belt, mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. or you know, or or healed 
wound, you know, if you, if you had a yeah. wound. Um, yeah. yeah, it seems like that that kind of depth. And, and I'm sure um, you can talk about it your, uh, yourself, but the fact that mm-hmm. that this was an all-black cast <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and production, even though even though the 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 frame is not us, there was there was freedom in in the space that you were yeah. allowed to create that was not tampered with or or intruded on. It sounds like so Absolutely. so that must have been a way for you to like really get into this particular character, Piccola in particular, but mm-hmm. you know Maureen too. Yeah, to tell this story that is you all are really doing it. It's so beautiful. So, yeah. Um, Jasmine uh, Milan Williams, I'm going to read your bio, returns to Aurora after appearing in Bull in a China shop in 2019. Her recent work includes Utopia at Cutting Ball Theater, The New Normal by Ashley Smiley, Inked Baby by Christina Anderson, love Christina Anderson, at Crowded mm-hmm. Fire Theater Company, which is an all-woman, I think, theater company, um, yeah. and The Last Sermon of Sister Imani, Awesome at Theater First. Um, companies you have shared space with include Campo Santo, uh, family company member, uh, Theater First. Those women, is it those women or those women? Those women or those women? women. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those women. Production company, uh, African American Shakespeare Company, and the New Conservatory Theater Company. So you've been like some of the groundbreaking theaters in the San Francisco Bay Area. You have been there. Yes. Like, yeah, you have a you have a pole on the moon. Like, yeah, you know, I'm yes. there. I, I, I feel blood on that, that stage. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I have shame, definitely right? been blessed, yes. Yes, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've uh, Yes, I've had a hearing it read is so funny. I was like, oh, you're going to read my bio. Okay. <laughs> I'm like usually rereading it to myself and make sure and all the punctuation and everything is correct. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I I started off because I'm a graduate of Cal State East Bay. Um, okay. And from from graduating, I was just trying to, like, you know, figure out what 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 acting looks like in a professional sense. You know, I didn't. I didn't know. I was just like, I know that I, I have this drive and I have this thing in my heart that says I need to be acting. Um, and Campos Santos was actually one of the first theater companies that I work with, and they are like my theater family. Every piece of work that I've done with them and that I continue to work with them has been like, it was the first place that I I found that not only was I an actor, but I was an artist. You know that I I wasn't just this vessel to to be put on stage but I was this collaborator of art you know and this and this journey and and to tell stories and so Composantos is very is any show with Composantos if you've seen it or you heard about it <clears throat> they're very much like shepherding the stories that are that need to be told now you know and they don't really shy away and it's not really like an editing it's like no we're going to put it in your face and you're going to receive it, you know, and people, and people react to that. And I was, and that, and that was my intro into the theater Bay Area world. And I'm forever grateful for them and always shouting out Campos Santos because they are my family. Um, and so then yeah, after that, yes, just, that's, I, that's Margot yeah. Hall, uh, Donald yes. Lacey, Sean San Jose, yes. 
And, and isn't there another founder who passed? Um, I don't remember. I don't know his name, but I thought there was a fourth person. There is, but I'm going to forget the name, and I okay. don't want to okay. try and mess it up. But yes, yes. Okay. And it continues to grow. Yeah. There's so many people involved with Combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What play yeah, was so that? So I, I love them. That was, that um, was your debut. on Mars. Yes, that mm. was on Mars. Oh, you were in home. that? Oh, that was so awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh. Everybody has that reaction, which is hilarious. I played I played um, Apple, the hooker on Mars. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I had the red wig. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, It's funny, that same reaction. So, yeah, that was my first, that was like 2004, it was, I think it might have been 16. I graduated 2014 from Cal mm-hmm. East Bay, so it was around there. I think it was like 2016. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that was that was a beautiful piece, and, and then I kind of, from there, figured out the work that I wanted to be doing, which was mm-hmm. stories that, you know, talked about the black community, the queer community, and that educated people. It wasn't just like, which I appreciate the, you know, the old stories and the other plays that have, you know, have laid, have kind of laid the, the, the groundwork for these plays to be, but I like to do plays that exist now, that talk about things mm-hmm. that are happening now. Um, and even if they are, you know, like Toni Morrison, this play was, I mean, this book was written the 70s, 60s, and it's still relevant now, you know, mm-hmm. coming yes, back it to it now. So relevant. I was just like, I, I didn't get to read the full novel, but even reading the adaptation of the play, I was just like, wow, this is still current in our communities and in the world. And so that's mm-hmm. the work that I, most of the theaters that I, companies that I've worked with align with that. They're working on stuff that talks about things happening now and things that are for social justice and social change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's been my, my, my journey. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, so um, did you graduate um, in theater arts uh, from uh, Cal State East Bay? I did. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I graduated with a, um, a theater arts. Uh, B, a BA and a communications minor. Okay. So I was okay. working those two. Yeah, yeah. But the theater mm-hmm. art department at Cal State East Bay, a lot of people don't know about mm-hmm. that we have a department, but a lot of us are working around the Bay Area. So how I was connected with Campo was from a friend that costume designed for them that went to Cal State East Bay. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like branched out. And then that's how I came back to, to get Picola because um, – Dawn also went to, she went to Cal State East Bay when it was Cal State Hayward. That's the director, oh, really? Dawn, um, Dawn Monique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so Dawn, cool. I actually got to, yeah, it's a, it's a full circle. And I got to work with her um, in college, too. She directed mm-hmm. me in my first Shakespeare play in college. And then she, you know, we've all just kind of kept in touch. And when there's an audition or something that comes up, she like reaches out, and I was like, "Oh, of course, the cola. Oh, absolutely, I will do the role." <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So, tell us about about um, you know, if you um, were telling uh, an audience about about the bluest eye, and more specifically, you know, your character characters, mm-hmm. um, what would be your your response? Um, I think my response would be with, with one of 
one of the actors that plays in the um, that is also in the reading, she said, Janae Simon, she said that we were the, I think there was a question about, is there a main character in the play? And she was like, I think the community is the main character. And that stuck with me throughout. And I was like, that's so true. She said that. And, and it is a community piece. It talks about this one community throughout the whole book and throughout the whole play. And then it kind of questions to flip it. And it's like, is this also your community? There's things that are going on. There's internalized racism. There's internalized trauma. There's, in, you know, there's all these things that we've picked up from the world that the world has kind of placed on us and that we just kind of carry through, but we don't really examine, you know. And so this, this book and this play is asking us to examine those things, to kind of look at our world and look at our community and see like, oh, you know, is there this little black girl in your community or, or are these, are, do these people, do mom and pa and Charlie and all these people exist in your community? And what are you mm-hmm. doing, you know, to, to acknowledge that and say, okay, so how can we change this and, like, move forward from? Or, and, and even the acknowledgement is, is, is helping you to move forward because you're like, it does exist. Where I think most of the time it gets kind of sweeped under, pushed, pushed away, like Piccola does in the play and in the novel. You know, she's dealing with all this stuff, but nobody's acknowledging it. They're just like, oh, she's, that's just the way that she is. That's just how her family is. But it's like, what did that, what, she was just born, you know, mm-hmm. and born into this world that she didn't ask to be in. And there's that, um, the breed, there's a monologue in the play where her mother, Mrs. Breedlove, is talking about her birth and then underlying um, that birth story, Piccola is asking to be, to disappear as, a, you know, as her, in her youth. She's just like, please, please, God, let me disappear. And that, it's such a, it's such a beautiful scene because her mom is like, I'm birthing this thing. And then she's already here and she's asking me to disappear. She doesn't want to be, you know, and I thought, I thought that was just powerful because a lot of, a lot of times, you know, we come into this world and we have we have no choice. We don't know what family we're going to be in. We don't know any of that. But all that we do know is that we we want to come in with love and be surrounded and, and, and be held in a certain way. And sometimes the world just doesn't allow that. And so it's like, mm. what what are these things? And with Piccola, the beautiful thing is she finds her friends. You know, she finds Claudia and she finds Frida. And they're able to, to pour in some of what the world and her family can't even give her. You know, so there's joy and there's laugh play as well, which is, which I feel is, is always an underlying of trauma. You know, people deal with so much trauma and the way that we survive is through the joy and the laughter, you -hmm. know. And so I think Piccola in her own world and where she ends up, um, the way that she can survive is is her imagination and, and what, and the joys, the little joys that she can hold on to. You know, even if they don't really exist, she's like, this thing makes me happy so I can hold on to that. You know, and I, and I feel like she, and I relate to her a thousand percent. Um, mm-hmm. I am a person that is, it, I, I look for those things in life because I'm like, life is not easy. And people often ask me like, oh, how do you, well, how do you promote positivity? And how do you do all these things? And I'm like, well, I choose it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, but it's a, it's a choice of mine to, to promote my survival and the survival of people around me. And I, and I feel that with Piccola, the groundingness of that. And she's just like, well, I may not have this. I may not have this. I may have experienced all these bad things, 
but I can hold on to this one thing that can bring me some joy and can connect me to something else, you know, outside of herself. So, yeah, mm. she's, she's, she's a beautiful, and it's, and it's, it's still more, you know, like what you said, she is a huge notch on my belt. And I'm like, I wish I can, I, I want to be able to keep continuing to dive into her because she's, there's not just one level. There's so much. I, I still think about her. You know, we worked on that in February. And I'm just oh, like, okay. wow, I can still reflect. Yeah, we worked, we started working on that at the beginning of February. Mm-hmm. But she's still in my mind, you know. And, and like most characters that I do, they stay with me and they teach me so much. And she's taught me a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. So so um, what do you think of the production? Um, uh, you know, it's he, so, listening it's to it so last week when it opened. <laughs> Yes, and it's so funny because we don't, I think now with COVID and, like, quarantine and stuff, it's been interesting being a theater artist because a lot of the stuff has been on film. And so we don't, we're not used to not seeing the full production before the audience. Right. You know, where when you're in theater, you are, you are the full production. We know everywhere. We know every turn and all this kind of stuff that we're going to (laughs) do. And we know that before the audience, you know, so listening, we're just like, oh, we are, it's an interesting, because we become the audience almost, because we didn't know what it was going to sound like all the way together. Mm-hmm. We didn't know which takes were going to get taken. We didn't know what sounds were going to get put in. We didn't know any, you know, Don would tell us like, oh yeah, Elton, who is the sound engineer, is going to put something in right here, but we would just have to imagine it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to hear it fully together was amazing. I was just like, wow. It was just like, you, you, I, I think I compared it to like drinking that first glass of water in the morning and your body just is like re-energized and you just feel it going through and energizing you because every turn I was explaining to them, I was like, even though I knew what was going to happen next, it still felt new mm-hmm. because we didn't know what was going to be added. And it was it was very interesting. I think anybody hearing their voice recorder or anybody that has experienced hearing their voice recorder for the first time is always like, ooh, is that me? <laughs> you know, there's a little, there's a little cringe. You're like, is that what I sound like? So, mm-hmm. but it yes. was, it was so, it was so great, and the process was, it was just, the process was just so beautiful. So I knew that the production and the piece was going to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk? Can you talk about any of? Um, maybe since we're talking about joy. Um, maybe can you talk about some of the scenes that are seen that, you know, um, sort of really lifts you up? And then maybe you could talk about um, one of your more difficult scenes. And if you want to get into character and do something, that's fine, too. <laughs> yes, I can definitely talk about the joyful scenes. And the the joyful scenes are in there and they're written in there, but also... Um, just being in an all-black space, there's so much joy. Um, we were able to, even through the trauma-filled scenes, we were able to share stories with each other and just laugh. You know, we're talking about our grandparents and our cousins and our uncles, and we're like, oh, I've had that experience in my family, and, and we can just laugh. So, so the scenes were also in there, and Toni Morrison's work just brings it out. You know, she just writes in a way where it's, it's everybody. You know, it's like, it's for you, it's for you, and you're going to see yourself. But um, there are, there's there's other characters in the play that are, they're like the gossips, the town gossips. 
and they kind of just lay it on, you know. So they're kind of like the women that are like, mm, mm-hmm, I'll see her over there in the bushes. What was she doing by herself? You know, exactly. And so they, and there's like three, I think it happens in the play three times. And these women come out, and they're all different women. We all play different women each time they come, but they're the gossips. And they just, you know, they just kind of talk about the town. And they're not really saying nice things, but the way they say it, you're just like, oh, okay, it's it's meant to be, you know, they're, they're the comedy and the little comic relief in there. But those people exist, you know, and they mm-hmm. don't really add to the community. They add to the community in a certain way, but not in a necessarily <laughs> good way, but they are mm-hmm. hilarious, you know. And Don was, like, giving us all the artistic freedom to just kind of dive into those characters. Um, so those were the hilarious and joyful parts. There's also a lot of joy in the kids, you know, um, Picola, Picola gets her period and uh, in the play and in the book and, and Claudia and uh, Frida are talking about it, but it's just what they know, you know, it's like what, what it shows you how much of the education the parents gave, you know, Picola's like, I don't know anything. I'm just, this, this thing is just happening to me. And the girls are like, mm-hmm. oh, you menstruating, you know, you, you, I know what's happening. And so in the conversation <laughs> with children, it's just, you know, it's so joyful. And we would laugh at it every time. And I was like, mm-hmm, you menstruating. And then the kids just make up stories about what that means and what's going to happen. So there's there's so much joy um, in there, and which helps with the tough scenes, um, mm-hmm. which I would say, I think my, not one of my hardest, but the one that like, I would feel every single time is a monologue um, and it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's right when Piccola wants to get her blue eyes, and she's talking to um, oh, and I'm just forgetting his name now. Not Charlie, that's her dad. But she's talking to the um, the man who's trying oh, to give yeah, her the, the blue the, eyes. The, the, the preach, the preacher guy. The seer. Yeah. Yes. Why can I not? Yes, mm-hmm. I can. I don't know why I can't remember his name right now. But she's talking. He to was terrible. At what he made her do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You know, yes, and that monologue she's talking about the dog, you know, the dog dying, like her seeing, witnessing that um, Mm -hmm. and saying like, and then realizing like, oh, I guess this is what I have to do to get what I want, you know, like Mm -hmm. that she really believed that, you know, this thing, after all the horrible stuff that happened to her. It was this moment that she really, I think she just, that's when the disconnect, where she was just like, oh, this is the last straw. And so there's that monologue, and it's and it's heavy, and it, and it would feel heavy every time, you know, her reimagining, because the way Toni Morrison writes, you can just see it so clearly, you know, and Lydia Diamond adapted it beautifully. And so, yeah, that that was a, a heavy, a heavy, heavy piece um, that she just had to go through. But the joy in juxtaposition with that just kind of, you know, it just, it, it's that shea butter on the skin, you know. It, it kind of, it makes it feel so smooth, but it's still hard, you know, to receive it and to and to know that that is there. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah she's she's complex. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um you know, you just sort of think about the genius that is uh, Toni Morrison and the genius that is um, the playwright who was able to adapt this work so well um, for yeah. the stage. I mean, all of the complexity and the depth mm-hmm. is not lost 
as as she you know really hones in as she mentions um you know in her um i guess preface about sort of mm-hmm. you know letting the children tell the tell us the story um, yeah and and so yeah yeah there's there's an innocence um there mm-hmm. uh, that kind of helps us holds us as we move through the tragedy because we know it's a tragedy right in the beginning <laughs> yes of of the novel yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. We don't. Ne- we don't know it, it, it. She she flips it like in the um, in the play. I don't. I don't think. I'm trying to remember the beginning of the play. Do we know what's going to happen in does the beginning? Tell? Like, if she does. She does. She tell yes. us. Yes. Oh, she does. I tell think, us. Okay. I believe. Yeah, I think Claudia does I, say yeah. There's yeah. She uses that okay. in the beginning too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's like, why do we want to go on this journey? <laughs> In the first place, like, did you ask, did you ask yourself, like, why would anybody want to continue reading? What is it? Are we right. just nosy? Like, what's the reason? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's it. You know, I think knowing the ending, you're like, how did it? How did it get there? You know, and I I know that when I when I did start the novel, even though I didn't finish it, I do remember. Oh, what? What happened? How did this? You know, how did this part happen? And I think it's the ushering in of the kids, you know. It's it's that thing on the playground where they're like, ooh, I heard this and this. And you're like, well, who did you hear that from, you know. And so it's it's very much that that draws you in. And it, it makes you want to know – it makes you want to know everybody's story, which I think Toni Morrison and Lydia Diamond do so well because it it is a story about everybody. You know, there's no – there is shame and there is harmfulness that each – each character does, but she 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 shows comp- compassion for each of them, you know. And I was like, I don't think that we're taught compassion a lot in this world. You know, there's a lot of things about, like, cancel culture where we're taught, like, oh, this person did this? Oh, cancel them. They can't be, you know, we can't even look at them anymore. They're, but we're not taught compassion. Like, why, how did that person get there? You know, and even though, yes, something that they did was wrong, can we have compassion for for them because they are also human. And I and I think me playing Piccola and then also the father and Charlie and all the horrible stuff that he does to Piccola, I still have mm-hmm. compassion for him after listening to the play and, and, mm-hmm. and continuing to read the novel because that's how Toni Morrison writes it. She's not saying, oh, we should give him a break or anything for what he's done, but she's like, look at this. What if we looked at it differently and saw the, you know, that saw his heard something about him and seeing what he has gone through and also which kind of made him the human that he was, you know. So right. it's a beautiful – she just does it for everybody in the play, you know. Everybody has this little – even the mother, Miss, Mrs. Breedlove, she has her – there's something for her, you know. Even though she can be horrible and spiteful and say these mean things, we get to see her in her light, you know, which is beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Yeah. Um, also, you know the way that um, you know your particular, um, you know the Aurora um, production, the way that it's um, you know set up. And I don't know, um, did Don, uh, the director, did she um, make it so that you all are playing these dual characters? Because um, you know the way that the playwright Lydia R. Diamond writes it. You could have actually had different people, actors playing the other characters. So I wonder, does does Don um, set it up this way so that 
you can have like these these two perspectives in one body, you know, the actor, mm-hmm. or or multiple yeah, perspectives I, in one body. Is that why she does it like this? I I didn't ask her the question, but did you all talk about that? Um, we talked we talked about it a little, but I can't exactly remember why they cast. But I knew that because it was an audio drama it was mm-hmm. nice to cast it this way because on stage we would have never played it this way. We could have never okay. played it this way. You know, there were some scenes mm-hmm. where I, I had to talk to multiple scenes where I had to talk to myself and also that happened for um, <laughs> Michael J. Asbury, mm-hmm. which was kind of yeah. interesting, you know, and a, and a challenge. And it was beautiful. But I think Don knew that first that we can all do it and also that it, it would it would just be so beautiful and complex, you know, because – we weren't mm-hmm. just hearing ourselves. We got to we got to be in the world, all five of us. We were like, oh, here I am, here, here I am, here. Here's a little bit of me here, and it worked mm-hmm. well for like how many people. And I think it worked well too for online. You know, I think if we had a little bit more than that, it would have been a little confusing, as far as like, okay. oh, we have to record here. This person has to come in. So the the keeping the the cast kind of condensed in this format, mm-hmm. I think, was a you know a very smart choice. Um, the mm-hmm. five of us, but and it worked so yeah. beautifully, mm. so beautifully. We, never on stage, yeah, never on stage with this, this could that happen. But in this, and it made it even more intimate. You know, mm-hmm. like we were the world, we were the community. Yeah. So yeah, it was. I I loved that aspect of it because I was like, oh, I would love to play multiple. I love playing multiple characters at, in one play. I'm like, oh, oh good. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, just um, you know, as a person that's not not an actor, it's like, wow, how do you keep them straight? Because I just think about Michael uh, J. Asbury, um, who was on my show last week, um, mm-hmm. uh, with the director Don. Yeah, he plays Daddy, Soaphead, yes. and Charlie, so and and so yeah, and they're like. They're, they're so different, all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and and then you are, uh, you know, Bacola and Maureen. And I was wondering, and then, you know, we think about Kathleen, who was on um, my show Wednesday, this this Wednesday. She plays Mama and Mrs. Breedlove. Like, she's two mothers mm-hmm. that are very different from yes. one another. And so I'm like, how do you keep yes. them straight? <laughs> and, yes. then, and then for, and then for uh, Janae, Simon to play Claudia and White Girl, like really? <laughs> yes, yes, really? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and it was <laughs> and it was a challenge. I think we were all ready for. It. We're like, yes, give us all the challenge, you know, because to not be on stage for so long is just, mm-hmm. you know, it's so hard on on actors and and theater actors specifically, and and so to have a challenge like that, I think it was welcomed. You know, I don't think any of us really like questioned it. We were just like, okay, <laughs> to work, you know, to work and to do this art together. We were just like, yes, we can do it. And I think mm. um, keeping the separate of the piece, I think Don really handled that well because we would kind of cement the character and then, and then we would come back to it. And Don would give us like notes like, oh, try this and try that. And we'd be like, oh, okay. So, and so then the character just kind of lived in us like it does mm-hmm. right when we're on stage. So then you don't even there's no, there's no there's no blending because we're just like, oh, that is who this person is and now they're mm-hmm. lived in. 
And so after that, it's just, you know, they're just cemented in us. And so every time, I don't even know how it happens, but the the voice was just the same throughout, you know. It was like, oh, this is Charlie. I hear Charlie. This is this is Mrs. Breedlove. That's not that's not Mama. That's Mrs. Breedlove. That Mama. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And Frida, yeah. and you just, and it's just so beautiful, you know. Mm. And and it's mm-hmm. the conco- it's a concophony of different voices. And even though it's us mm. playing it, sometimes we would just we would listen, and we would just be mm. amazed by each other. We're like, wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 it was hard. Uh, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So so tell us um um and then you can give us some moments that you might want to share um in in character. So who is Maureen? I'm I'm trying to remember um right now. I'm like trying. I can't remember who is Maureen. Maureen, Maureen Pale. Oh, she was um debutante. She kind of when I was oh. playing her, I was thinking of um. I was thinking of Whitley Gilbert. <laughs> oh, yes, she would be perfect. Yes, she is so Maureen, that's Whitley what, Gilbert. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I was thinking of. But she's a little bit more mean, you know, Maureen. Like, she knows she's beautiful. She's very much like, oh, everybody's going to look at me, so I'm just going to act like I'm the nicest person in the world, but I'm not the nicest person, mm-hmm. you know. So she was she was really fun to play. Um hmm. Uh, and just kind of like chalk her up, you know. She was just like, Dom was like, pour it on. I'm like, okay, absolutely. We're gonna get into Marie. <laughs> so yes, she mm-hmm. was. She was really fun. She's a fun character, mm-hmm. and she she has her levels. You know, everybody has their levels. Um, mm-hmm. And then Piccola, and I also got to play one of the women. So in two of the scenes, oh, and okay. yeah, in two of the three women scenes, I'm playing two of the women. Okay. Yeah, just not. I think just not the last one. Just not the last mm-hmm. one because the last one is talking about Pecola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that was also cool. Yeah. One of the one of the town gossips, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So Pecola, you know, she wants to be Maureen, and so in mm-hmm. your person as an actor, Pecola becomes Maureen, and Maureen. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, just sort of thinking about the You know, the psychology of it. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Oh wow! This is yeah. Wow, Don is pretty, it's you deep. know, pretty uh, amazing. And you all doing this is pretty amazing. Wow! We should like we could do a study on this work. I'm glad it's up for yeah. a minute. You know, through, through May 21st. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we have to. Ask, I, was, I know. I need to ask Don why she specifically mm-hmm. casted those the way that she did. But yeah, it was. Yeah, so she would talk to Maureen too. So yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Definitely come yeah. and listen. Oh, it's it's really beautiful. Um, oh my goodness, you all are so good. And I just, yeah, the sound is just so well done. Oh my goodness, it's yeah, it's so well scripted, all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you all are really an ensemble. You know, all of it. You know, um, oh, the sound you. design as well as you know these this you know the acting. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. So um, yeah, so Miss Bacola, let's hear something. Come, come visit Miss us today. I know she don't got to have my script up. I would have given you something, but she was just. Um, let me think of one of her lines. Hmm. She'd say, 
Oh, man, because I don't want to, you know, Toni Morrison's words. You can't just be no. paraphrasing on Toni Morrison. No, I totally understand. No, you can't. You just think about it. No, you cannot. You do not want to paraphrase Miss Toni Morrison. You want to come correct. Let me think of a line that she says. Um, thinking about or you the can lines just talk about. Or you lines. can just talk about a scene um, if you if you can't think of any lines. That's okay. Um, you could just talk about a scene. Um, you know that was difficult. Um, she has. I mean, there's that's supposed to be animate. She's just so beauty. The way that the thing that I think I love about her the most is the way that she sees the world. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everybody sees it as this, like, horrible thing. And because horrible things are happening to her, she sees the world as beautiful, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where she's um, walking to get her candy um, that she likes to get from the store when she's finished all her chores, and she sees dandelions. And she's like, I don't know what people call, you know, dandelions. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that they're beautiful. And yeah. and in that, you know, and in that journey, seeing herself, you know, mm-hmm. and, and relating those dandelions back to herself, and then mm-hmm. and then something happens in the world, and then she's like, oh, I understand why they call these things ugly, mm-hmm. you know. But right. she's just yeah. yeah, it's just the beauty of it of like, oh, this childlike thing. She is a child, and then you see the the impact that the world has on children, and it, mm-hmm. and it and it asks you like how. You have to be careful the way you the the way you orchestrate things into children's life, because when they they are new, they're they're fresh canvas until somebody marks them, and now they're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, now this is what I am. So yeah, she's just. I think that was the most complex and beautiful thing that I loved about Piccolo, the beauty that she saw in the world, in a world that wasn't so beautiful to her. And didn't treat her right. the way it should have treated her. Yeah. Mhm. Yes. Yes. And and yeah. then when you mentioned you know the dandelion um, uh, scene, um, her her mother Mrs. Breedlove has a similar kind of um, uh, experience where um, she realizes that the world doesn't see her the way that she sees herself because she sees herself as beautiful, and then something happens, right. and then that other gaze is projected onto her and she she um uh you know she um absorbs it and and then reflects it back mm-hmm. out so she's no longer beautiful uh, because right. of you know the other mhm mm-hmm. you know she she becomes yeah. other and and lives in that other other space i mean the scene where she's with that that white girl the baby and and mm-hmm. um, and Bacola's waiting to take the laundry home, and that that yes. apple pie, or no, the berry pie is sitting in the kitchen. It just, I can smell it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and then her friends come over, you know, to visit her. They walk all the way across town, or, you know, it was far. And yeah, you know, she's happy to see them because they they're good friends. You know, her friends they care about her, and so it's like, well, we haven't seen her in a while. Let's let's go look for her. And and the right. mother says, you know, like, why are you in the neighborhood? We just happen to be like you. You don't just happen to be in this neighborhood. We are, we are not where you. We're you know, it's like too far. But right. that's just one of the sweet things about about the friendship, you know, that these girls. Okay, well, she doesn't stay with us anymore, but she's still our sister, 
and we're going we're yes. going you know check up on her and mm-hmm. um yeah that's that's really beautiful and and but then what happens you know to Pacola in in that in that particular scene is so wrong yeah yeah yep. yeah mhm yeah but mm-hmm. like you say you know Pacola's just like okay well Wow. Okay. So how do how do I how do I become how do I how do I continue to be a good girl? You know, well, I'll yeah. go home and I'll wash the dishes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's quite the complex play, and I'm I'm so glad I got to be a part of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you did this. Uh, you said you all um, you worked on this, and for two weeks, I think Don told me. Did you say you did this in mm-hmm. January or February? When did you all re- re- record this? February. Yeah, the beginning of yeah, the beginning of February. Yeah, so that was two months ago. So you are on to other things. Yep. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> we, it was fast and <laughs> it was real fast. People were like, "Whoa, it's done." Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. nice to wow. hear it now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what are you on to now? Um, now I am just relaxing for a little bit. <laughs> okay. And I'm I doing, I'm doing some like readings and stuff with, um, Camposanto. We have like, we read some plays together, we read new works. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And just, and just little things here and there, but, um, no large productions just yet. Okay. But I'll be okay. doing one with, um, the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And they're going to be oh. doing intimate apparel. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right. When is that? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure the exact date because that was the show for uh, Shelter in Place happened. So we mm-hmm. never got to fully, we never got to go on stage and actually do it. We were in tech rehearsals and then we got the order to um, close down. So hopefully that'll be coming up soon too. Mhm. Yeah. Isn't mm-hmm. it awesome that Marco Hall is the uh, artistic director yes. of the Hansberry Theater? The first so, time so in fitting. its history? Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so fitting. Very fitting. Mhm. Yes. Yes. I'm yes. thankful. Mhm. So wow. that's up next for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Do you want to give your website? Oh, yes. Uh, my website is jasminemilan.com, and I will update it all the time. <laughs> I do update it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, the um, – Oh, no problem. Well, the bluest eye, which opened um, April 9th, continues again through May 21st, and it is a radio play, which means all you need is some technology and you can just listen, and it's so such a wonderful journey. Um, the uh, it's it's uh, yeah. We actually have a um, um, we have a uh, a friends and family discount, and I don't know it by mm-hmm. heart. But if you go to wandaspix.com <laughs> or look at the interview <laughs> that we had last week with Don and Michael. Uh, she gives it there, and I put it there. But it gives it, it's like half off, and you could go twice, <laughs> and you could yes. you could share with friends um, because that's a really good family friends discount. Um, 
But uh, the phone number for Aurora Theater is 510. Yes, they have a phone number, and people answer it, too. Um, 843-4822. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Like, we're sort of like, it's so nice to be able to get a live person on the end of a phone call. Yes. 510-843-4822. And you can also visit Aurora Theater, spelled with R-E dot O-R-G, for more information. And, again, if you want that discount, which I don't remember, I'm sorry, I'm not prepared right at the moment. I do put it in Wanda Six. If you scroll down and look at the, um, the information there about about this wonderful production, The Bluest Eye, um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> so, is there anything you wanted to share, uh, Jasmine, that I did not ask you, or you didn't get a chance to? You know. No, speak? I think you touched everything. I think I would just say, you know. Spread joy and happiness in this world because we all need it. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes, I share. Yeah. I share. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, smiles, even if you're not feeling it, it, it kind of warms yes. something inside. And eventually, by the time your lips do it, you are feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right, yeah. And then, if you know, if I do a little Pepsi-Cola, you know, could um could find joy. And, and express it, you know, um, so innocently and wonderfully and intentionally, because it's an intentional thing. You know, when we talk about the dog, how she would bring it to scraps and things, and he was happy that the dog was happy mm-hmm. to see her. Um, yes. Yeah, which goes to show and show you that there's, there's always, you know, um, misery is a choice. And even if things aren't mm-hmm. wonderful, and even if, if life is not good, I guess you don't have right. to choose misery. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really really right. interesting. It's kind of like you got to like sit and think about that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't have to choose despair. You don't have to choose that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's easy to choose. It's easier to choose that, but you don't have to choose it. Yes, and we see in your character um, you know, the difficulty and uh and ultimately what happens you know um to her and to a lot of others you know like her yeah 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 so thank you thank you so much for for wearing that character you know for deciding mm-hmm. to to embody her cuz yeah yeah mm-hmm. and you you do such a wonderful job of it you're just great and all everything oh, i've ever you, seen Wanda. you in you just phenomenal <laughs> Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. yeah. Keep up, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You take good care. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Peace and blessings. So, um, there's a few things happening, and if I can get it together, I will announce it because everything is not in Wanda's picks. Ah, let's see. There is there's so much happening on the 17th. Um, let me let you know about a few things that I did not, I was not able to post. Um, and one of these things uh, is called Into the Current, and that is tomorrow. It's um, it's a a magical evening of performance art, and it's a free event, and uh, it's a night of transgenerational. Um, Q, Z, Queer, um, 
trans, bisexual, um, intersex maybe, people of color, um, <laughs> time travel and performance, I love time travel, curated by Europa Grace and Maria Medina with the support of Queer Rebels. Uh, this is the second year of uh, of the intergenerational curatorial residency um, of this group. And uh, so tomorrow night is a night of performances interwoven into a story that belongs to everyone, featuring Tongo Eisen Martin, Mimi Tempest, Kayla Mar- Mar- uh, Marin, sorry, uh, Oka Balda, uh, Amelia, and Amanda Vi- uh, Vigil, uh, Jesus Gillian, Truck Nguyen, Gaia YXYZ, no, excuse me, Gaia WXYZ, sorry, uh, Mirza Madra, and Ava Square, my friend Ava. Uh, at this critical moment, um, the artists mentioned here feel the urgency in sharing the rich stories and experiences of uh, its QTBI people of color community. It is vital that we take up space as a community. This multi-generational evening of performance is part of a conversation and a reclaiming of our queer histories, presence, and futures. It's a free event. So um, I don't know how you find it if I, you don't have a link. So I'm going to have to post it for you in um, in wandaspix.com. So give me a moment, and I will do that uh, shortly. And I will also post it in Wanda's Picks, uh Facebook at Wanda's Picks and Facebook at Wanda Sabir. Um, so you can find it even more easily because it is a Facebook event. And maybe if you, you're writing, I'll just tell you what the number is. Facebook events number 47601590344375. And the way it looks as looks is facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 47601590. Three four four zero three seven five, and again, it's the Queer Rebels, and they might have a website, and this might be theirs, <laughs> so you can find it that way. And I also want to offer my condolences to the families and friends of of of, um, of Jerry Lange, who made her transition on uh, April tenth. Wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, maverick news uh, journalist, and just keeper of the culture here in the Bay. Um, yeah, Oaktown, Oakland. She was Oakland, mother uh, of the town. So anyway, I want to express my condolences to her family. And is there anything else happening? I'm trying to think. Oh, how could I forget? Um, Burr Peach at Alter Theater is tomorrow. It's, yeah, Alter Theater is having a fundraiser and debut of a part one of Burr Peach. Bruh Peach, oh my goodness. Uh, the Peach Boy meets Bruh Rabbit on stage. Well, actually, in, in the radio. It's another radio play. Yeah, it's going to be so awesome. You don't want to miss that. Uh, it continues, but it's just opening. And there are three parts, and you can watch them, listen to them all at once, or you can listen to them, spread them out one at a time. And there might be other things happening, but those are the ones that are just sort of, oh, of course, um, San Francisco International uh, Film Festival is continuing uh, through the 18th, so you want to go to their website and see what's up and what's left and what's streaming that you can get into because the selections are simply magnificent. 
And then at HBO, of course, um, the uh, the film Our Towns is screening, and uh, oh man, what a what a great, great, great film it is. Uh, directed by Academy Award nominated filmmakers Stephen Osher and Jean uh, Jordan, uh, and HBO's Emmy nominated Raising Renee. And the HBO documentary, um, Our Town, debuted on Tuesday, April 13th, and it's a remarkable portrait of America and how the rise in civic and economic reinvention is transforming small cities and towns across the country. And it's based on the best-selling book, Our Town's A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America by journalists James and Deborah Fallows. The visually stunning feature documentary spotlights ingenious local initiatives and explores how a sense of community and common language of change can help people and towns find a different path to the future. And uh, it is really remarkable. And I had wonderful interviews with the uh, directors and uh, and writers, journalists, um, uh, this week. And so I'm going to be... Um, Ah, writing something and uh and having um you know having these these two and I had two interviews with um with Stephen uh Asher and and Jean Jordan and uh, James and Deborah Fallows this week. I think it was Monday, Monday Tuesday. So, working on getting that uh into a format that I can share. <laughs> um like I said in a story and also uh you know so that you all can listen to it. So look for that. And again, thank you so much for listening and joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. And uh, Ramadan, Mubarak, all of those who are participating in the fast uh, time of introspection, a time of letting go of those things that do not serve us as we strive to be our best human beings, try to be our best selves, because you never know. Um you know who you are going to run into and uh and and also how many chances you might have uh to redo something you know often that first impression is all we get to do so we want to make sure that our first impressions are our best impressions so ramadan is, is a way to to fine tune who that self is and to let go of all those things that are not serving our best selves so we can be the person that we were destined to be in this iteration of our of our life spirit on a journey of course um, you know, yeah, so I'm going to go now. <laughs> you take good care. Have a good weekend. Peace and blessings.